Hello and welcome to Relative Digressions. I'm Felicia. And I'm Brenna. And this is the podcast where we embark on a voyage of discovery and rediscovery through classic Doctor Who. I am revisiting episodes that in some cases I haven't seen for 15 or 20 years. Whereas I'm seeing episodes for the first time in in almost all cases. And then we are meeting back up to compare our relative digressions. So, this time out, we have been watching the Patrick Troughton story, The Mind Robber, which will complete Renner's set of classic Doctors. Yes, uh, after this episode, we have now seen uh, one episode or or movie of every one of the so-called classic Doctors. I think, in some sense, this feels almost more than any episode we've watched so far, and not in a bad way, of its era. So, we started in the 1960s. And now we have come back to the 1960s. But this is a completely different era to the William Hartnell era. Well, they're on a lot more psychedelics. Yes. In that respect, it's also different to the episode surrounding it. But I guess there's no reason why, in my head, the two 60s eras should be similar. I mean, did this feel to you similar to the Time Meddler? Not, not at all. Because in my head, I felt like it would be more similar, and I don't really know why. And at the same time, I also thought that whilst I remembered it being very weird and surreal, I thought that when I rewatched it, it would be more toned down than my memory. In fact, it, no, no, it's it's just it really a sort is of just yeah. Lynchian and weird as well. I say Lynchian, obviously it predates David Lynch, but but it's like it's surreal and sinister. Yes, right, absolutely, it is sinister. Although the episode is is quite playful. Um, I definitely think that there is a lot of horror in it, which I'll bring up. Um, What happens in this story is that the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, they end up outside of reality, and they are drawn into a different universe called the Land of Fiction. And it takes them several encounters with characters from fiction, from real-world fiction, like significantly Lemuel Gulliver or Rapunzel or similar characters, for them to realise that they are in this universe populated by fictional beings. Although annoyingly, the Britbox subtitles do spoil this. And having figured that out, when they get to the heart of it, there is a human author who has been kidnapped by a being called the Master Brain, I've, uh, I, I sort of, I felt, I find myself slightly losing track at some points here. Right, which is, I think, very understandable because you've got the master of the land of fiction, who's sometimes referred to simply as the master, and you have the master brain. Neither of them are, in fact, the famous enemy of the Doctor called the Master, who's not going to be introduced until next Doctor. So it is all a bit complicated, and their plan is a bit muddy. And the, how do you become fixed? It is, yeah, understandably befuddling. The Master Brain is the servant of an alien race who we never see and their plan, sort of like the Matrix, is that they're going to convert all of humanity into fiction and they'll be drawn into the land of fiction leaving the Earth uninhabited for this alien race to invade. But the aliens haven't got a human imagination with which to create the land of fiction in the first place uh, so they have con- kidnapped the master, plugged him into this computer, the master brain, and he has been working tirelessly for who knows how long, and he just wants to stop. And so originally their plan is to kidnap the doctor and have the doctor replace him. However, the doctor thwarts that ambition, and so instead the master brain tries to simply destroy the doctor and his companions. 
And, you know, this seems a bit of a, a cliche. You know, we've seen this a lot since then, that the Doctor and the Master Brain dual minds and the Doctor's mind ends up being stronger and he turns right, exactly. things, he turns the table on the Master Brain, destroys the Master Brain, and the land of fiction disappears. Everybody just fades away back to their origin points. And that just leads us straight into the credits. Um, we won't it's really see the fine. We won't really see what what you would call the final scene of this story until actually the first scene of the invasion, the subsequent serial. Do you mind me asking how that? I haven't seen it, but what what then happens? The the TARDIS has reassembled it, and the the Doctor and Jamie celebrate that they are back where they used to be. And Zoe inquires, "Are they still trapped somewhere?" They turn on the scanner and discover that they're on the moon, and then. In a sort of dun 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 moment, they realise that a missile is flying straight towards them. the 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 reason that this wasn't filmed is because it would have required reconstructing the console room standing set, which generally was only ever set up for episode ones, and it would take up a lot of real estate and setup time for one scene. So that's why there's this quite abrupt ending. But you can imagine that... Oh, is that it? I, so they have to physically... They didn't have it as a standing set. They had sorry, sorry I, can't, I just call it a standing set. But no, the, the key point is that it's not a standing set. Right, exactly. So it, it's it's unlike, I think, the modern Yeah, uh, the, the, there, sets, there are no are... standing sets for Doctor Who at this point. It, it doesn't warrant them. It it often gets the smallest studio in Lime Grove. This was a rare occasion where actually they filmed at Television Centre on one of the larger stages there because they needed it. But yeah, sure. so the, the 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 salient point is that no, the, the TARDIS is not a standing set, which is why we don't have this ending scene. But you can imagine that, it, like, if that hadn't been an issue, the actual go to credits would have been them realizing a missile was coming and then cliffhanger into the credits, go to the invasion. Indeed. I'm right saying that the first episode, which ends with the destruction of the TARDIS, is an addition. Right. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes business going on here. It kind of competes with the Colin Baker era for behind-the-scenes shenanigans. Peter Ling had written a four-part story. It was originally meant to be six parts. Then they decided that the concept could only sustain four episodes. Correct, I think. Well, it works with five, but they're quite short. I think six would have felt too long. And, and the first episode is noticeably different and wasn't written by Peter Ling. Bit of a grievance there. there. There is, in fact, no credited writer on the first episode, but it was written by Derek Sherwin, the script editor. Right. Um, in the in the fine tradition of Doctor Who script editors writing bits of the show when they weren't supposed to and not putting their names on it. Cough, Douglas Adams. Then uh, the Dominators, the preceding serial, went down from six to five episodes, but they still had a, a slot in the schedule where they needed to broadcast an episode of Doctor Who. Derek Sherwin, the script editor, with nothing to work with, then has to come up with a, a new opening episode. And the way episodes are budgeted, you assume that the first episode is going to get most of the budget because it's introducing the characters the locations, etc., etc. By the time you get to the final episode of a serial, you don't usually need lots of new sets or new actors, so the final episode tends to get very minimal budget. Sure, but it doesn't necessarily look bad budget because you get you get some follow-through of actors already being hired, etc., etc. Right, yes. You know, it, it's benefiting from what was already set up. 
But this is a problem because... But that wasn't the case. Now, Derek Sherwin needs to come up with a first episode where all he has to work with is the main cast and the existing TARDIS sets and nothing else. Uh, hence the White Void, really. Exactly. The White Void is not about imagery. I mean, it is in the sense that Derek Sherwin was like, what can I do that's kind of interesting? Yeah, and it did. It, I, it is quite interesting, I think. And this is one of the reasons why they go to Television Centre and use one of the larger studios there so that you can get this sense of a really large white expanse with the characters really lost in it which w- wouldn't have worked in the Lime Grove studios. Right, and I think it's a very effective episode. Yeah, so the second episode then is the one that presumably got the budget boost. Right, and you can see that well, it w- it works as a nice contrast that you could have written intentionally, but you go from a white void and just the regulars and the white robots to loads of different sets, a whole bunch of different fictional characters. Like, you go from really minimal to throw everything at the screen in the jump from episode one to two. I'm quite curious as to how the original episode one, as it were, so what was episode two, began, because the whole business where they go outside and then they come back in, actually, I think you could just cut all of that and just scrape the beginning and the end scenes together, essentially, into one longer TARDIS scene. That's almost all that Derek Sherwin came up with. They kind of workshopped that first episode, and all that Derek Sherwin essentially wrote was they're psychically attacked. And that's kind of it, just like a scene description almost. And then what does that actually look like? They, They kind of workshopped into what form it eventually took, They found the white robot props, and so they were like, oh, well, we can use those, let's bring those in. There's a real sense of that throughout the serial. One of the nice things about the premise is that you can almost start with props and write a scene for them. Yes. So there's this interesting sequence with the Medusa, which I want to talk more about. Entertainingly, the Medusa was the one statue that was made specifically for the serial. The Minotaur, for example, that was another prop, that just a costume that already existed that they then wrote around. Right, I assume the Gulliver's costume is pretty easy to do. The children who appear at one stage look like they've just essentially come out of... The, the um... children are supposed to be um, kind of an evocation of E. Nesbitt. But they, again, not scripted. Um, no- notably, there's a, a bit of tying in done where when the psychic attack begins, when they're in the void in episode one, Jamie has these nightmares about being attacked by a unicorn. Which I assume means Jamie is a is a replicant? <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's one of the last scenes. I think, actually, that might have been in some original script. Well, yes, the unicorn attack is in the original script, and what Derek Sherwin realised is that he could tie in episode one a bit more by making that something that Jamie then has a nightmare about in episode one. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's actually reasonably seamless and, and, and quite artful. There are some quite nice bits of cinematography in this. Is that, most people would say that the first episode is actually their first episode. Their favourite episode. Yeah. Which is a bit sad for Peter Ling, but and it, I think it was the the most well regarded at the time. Although um, a bit like with the Time Meddler, when the Time Meddler did sort of something new and odd, this episode put off and got a lot of negative comments at the time from people saying, "Oh, Doctor Who's gone downhill. <laughs> this is nonsense." <laughs> well, happily, that never happened again. This story is now seen as something of a classic. And actually, uh, people's responses to this are sort of interesting all over the board. Again, there's there's a lot to say about behind the scenes, but the actors and crew were very unhappy with 
conditions that came to a peak on this story, but were very enthusiastic for this specific story, which is the only reason they really overcame those grievances. The heads of drama at the BBC didn't like the concept originally. Then once it was in production, they became very fond of it. It's a story that's gone through quite a lot of sort of changing opinions. Uh, Yeah, I just really like it. So there's a bit more to the story that I began there, which is that the serial is five episodes. As we say, they added one late, but it only runs as long as a four-episode serial. Each episode is much shorter than normal. Which, I'm going to be honest, I, I, I think it works quite well, because you, you sort of have a cliffhanger of a kind at the end of each one. Yeah, it fits in really well, especially with what this story is doing, because it's, it's quite a sort of episodic little mini, mini moments. Yes, exactly. But... Patrick Troughton said, hang on, you're only paying us for a four-episode shooting block. You can't just tell us that we're going to have to film an extra episode. So they had to just do the same amount of shooting for five episodes. Rightly so. Great. Good on Pat Troughton. And Patrick Troughton also, at this point, had a grievance for a long time about the pace that they were working, the fact that things changed at the last minute, the sudden introduction of this first episode here brought it to a head, Uh, And he made a complaint, and that complaint is where Doctor Who went from continuous production to being produced in seasons with a holiday block between each season. Doctor, Mm. we're not actually in flight, are we? No, why? Well, then presumably we've landed. So why isn't the scanner showing anything? Well, because, well, we are nowhere. It's as simple as that. So we didn't have lots of options to talk about because uh, Patrick Troughton has lost the most episodes. And at some point, I think we probably will watch something which is only available in Reconstruction because the reality is that that is part of experiencing classic Doctor Who in the modern age. But happily, this is not the case with the mind robber. And this would be a terrible one to have been lost because it is such a visually inventive and odd story. Yes, a great example of this is the sequence where the Doctor finds Jamie as a sort of stand-up cutout. And he thinks he has to reassemble Jamie's face, but he gets it wrong the first time and a different actor plays Jamie. The joke is that when they put him back together... It's only because Zoe's there that the Doctor gets it right, and actually, the Doctor really doesn't know what Jamie looks like. Yes, but yes, that is a scene which is actually quite entertaining. They stick with the new quote-unquote Jamie for a a, a while, I think, maybe at least an episode. Right, but this is, again, a behind-the-scenes thing. Fraser Hines had chicken pox. Huh. They they came up with this whole conceit, very quickly wrote some new script. Hamish Wilson came in, learns the part overnight. They send Jamie's revised script to Fraser Hines to learn whilst he's convalescing. And this whole, um, all of episode two and half of episode three, where Jamie is played by a different actor which fits in perfectly with what the story is doing. And it's quite fun and very good, I think. Again, like with so much of this story, sort of a behind-the-scenes exigency, but just what what a perfect serial concept for all of these things to have happened to. Yes, exactly. It, it really wouldn't have worked well in a more classically dramatic serial. And that is so much of the Troughton era... The Mind Robber was one of the first Troughton stories I saw, and now it's the first Troughton story you've seen. Right. 
which gave me this concept of the Troughton era as a kind of surreal, 60s, freaky, deaky, high-concept, mind-play, psychodrama-type affair. Which is just not the case. Which is just the exact opposite of what it is. The Patrick Troughton era is sort of renowned as when the monster of the week, the base under siege, all of that came in. It was very grounded. It was, here is an alien attacking a military base on Earth and the Doctor blinds it with science and quite repetitive and formulaic, which is part of the reason why they decided to do like something very radical when Pertwee came along was because it had become this kind of formulaic thing. So, in fact, the mind robber is not at all indicative of what the Drowson era really was. How how well do you think the Doctor's character comes across in it? Oh, so you can absolutely still get a great sense of not just the Doctor, but the companions, they are really well characterised here. This is the point where I should, I should then ask you um, what what you make of Patrick Troughton. Uh, I, I, quite, I quite like him. He does a few things that Will Hartnell did in terms of... There's a slight childishness to him. He, he gets all worried. He does things with his hands when he's worried and he's all... He frets. Fretting, I think, is the word. Yes, he frets. You see him visibly fretting. And I'm a big fretter. Oh, my giddy aunt, and so forth. It precisely, yes. It's a bit camp, actually. It is, you're right. I wouldn't associate that word with the second Doctor if you hadn't said it, I don't think. Because it's not Kenneth Williams, is it? No, no, but it's at not, all. Oh, it's not that. And it's not Paul Darrow either. I, w- I would give literally anything to have Kenneth Williams playing the Doctor Perfection. But no, it's not that. It's not at all. But 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 there is a, there is an element of campness. The other thing that Troughton does that plays into the comic stuff and is prefiguring what Tom Baker will do with the role a bit is he's this comic, like you say, there's a kind of a campness. And then occasionally, because let's not forget Patrick Troughton, a really you know, well-renowned actor who's done some very serious roles. And so there are these moments where he will suddenly become quite dark, quite brooding and very serious. That's very interesting. I'm looking forward to... You, you see this perhaps the most in The Enemy of the World, where Patrick Troughton plays both the Doctor and the villain of the story. But you do get moments of it here. Um, for example, when the Master of Fiction sends him the puzzle to put Jamie's face back together to turn him back into Fraser Hines. And at this point, the Doctor realises he's just being messed with, he's being toyed with. He he sort of just peers up into the sky and he mutters under his breath, just like, come on then, if you're going to play games, in a real kind of like, this isn't fun, I'm not having fun, I am very angry. But you'll get more of that in other Troughton stories because this one is definitely one of the more Fun ones, right? I see. Yeah, yeah. I quite like him. You'll notice I'm not being effusive about him. It wasn't. I didn't. I didn't feel like I yeah, loved him. I, I did. I did register a kind of muted. Yeah, I like him there. Not. I dislike him. I just think he doesn't. You know, when we discussed Sylvester McCoy, I mean, I fell in love with the seventh Doctor. And I would say that actually, though, Sylvester McCoy is the closest comparison to Patrick Troughton. Troughton's yeah, two descriptors that are often attached to him are a clown and a hobo. And you can attach those descriptors to the Seventh Doctor too. Yes, uh, and the hobo thing is quite interesting. He, his clothes just look too big for him. I, I'm sure books have been written about this. Uh, I feel there's a PhD thesis in this. But but he feels like a man who is filling a, sh- a shadow which is slightly too big for him. 
that's such a good insight that I've actually never heard before. And it, it's there in the costume. And for the character, it makes sense. You know, his, 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 he's never been a regenerated Doctor before. Right, yeah, exactly. But the, the, the person of the second Doctor is trying to work out how to be himself now that he's not himself. And that that is very interesting. I think the Patrick Troughton Doctor is quite a contained characterization that you can quite clearly sort of delineate away from other Doctors, which is borne out in the fact that you tend to see people for whom he's actually like the definitive Doctor. And there is there is a, a really strong Troughton era following where that is almost its own thing to them. I think because he has less in common with other Doctors than the other Doctors have with each other. Yes. I mean, I was just thinking, and actually happily, next time we intend to be visiting the five Doctors. Because what I was thinking is I'm really interested to see this Doctor against other Doctors. That is to come. But yes, I absolutely didn't dislike him. I quite liked him. I think the main thing that sets him apart from Hartnell is he's very much on a more peer-to-peer relationship with his companions. They're a bunch of friends together, which is different to how Hartnell was with companions. Yes, uh, he feels like like he has particular areas in which he is an expert and good at things, but there are other parts, as we see with Zoe helping him with Jamie's face, he's not hyper-competent and above all his companions. Sometimes they just do better than him. And indeed, you see this in the Hartnell era quite frequently. The difference is that the first Doctor frequently won't admit that he is lost, and his companions are then there to kind of spare his blushes almost. You also have this thing where Jamie is in almost the entire era, so the the second Doctor-Jamie relationship is really quite a unique Doctor-companion relationship. And and also off screen, like they they were great pals. So that friendship is very defining. I mean, of course, that that's almost a bit more modern. Yeah, if anything, I guess it reminds me the most of Tennant and Donna. Right, they're mates. They're yeah, exactly. They're just mates. I think this is a good time. This is a good time to talk about the companions. So I really like, really, really like Jamie. Uh, no, I didn't. I just like Zoe. I feel like I got a bit more of a handle on Jamie in this episode. He comes through really quickly he just um yeah plus he has quite a unique i mean like the fact he's he's a highlander i mean in america he's a highlander he's not scottish he is a highlander yeah like really properly like he is of the clan mccrimmon he has the clan tartan and he's the piper and you're like a proper proper backstory not like perry Oh, she's American and anti-English in that. He has that red key. He's attacking a red coat. There's a sort of there's a, so Jamie feels like a character who exists in history. I think my one of my issues with Zoe, just to make the comparison, is um, so I I haven't seen this sort of story that she's introduced to, which is, I think is the Wheel in Space. Yeah. But she feels like what I might call a generic space lady. Yeah, sort of dander kind of. Yeah, I mean it. It probably reflects to a degree a little bit about the sort of underlying gender of the people writing these scripts, right? That, that she is, I think, has less roundedness to her character. She mm, she is. I mean, you maybe don't see that much in this story. She has got quite a developed character, actually. But she is very much inspired by a genre of pulp, which, which is lampshaded here, that she remembers the carcass from serialised comic adventures, 
So that's kind of like a nod to the kind of thing that she she is. And you see some of Zoe's smartness because she actually assists the Doctor in she's making readings for the TARDIS and like she's clearly helping him a bit with the actual TARDIS navigation or the working of it. She's sort of reminiscent of Vicky in the Time Meddler at places. Yes, exactly. And Vicky as well feels like a future space lady. Like I think they both got good characters and I think the actors playing both of them are very good. But... um, I think I like it more. I think there's always a risk when Doctor Who has characters who are from the generic future because it's hard to make that feel tied down to something. And I think that is that makes it struggle a bit. Whereas Jamie's like obviously he's like he's a Highlander, you know, with all the everything that that might involve. Exactly. And, and, you know, I've said already that Jamie is almost as core to this run as Troughton is. And I think that in a sense, a lot of the people who really like Troughton really like Jamie and you you almost can't separate it. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who say, oh, I love Troughton and I don't like Jamie, but liking Jamie and liking Troughton is almost the same thing. They're such a pair, such a unit. Yeah, exactly. And, and you that very much comes across here. <laughs> I don't think the Doctor doesn't know what Jamie looks like. Which is adorable. There's some really great scenes of the Doctor and Zoe, actually. There's a series of sequences, but I think this is typified for the bit of the Medusa, where the Doctor is basically telling Zoe to like remember that these things she's seeing aren't real. And then there's actually a really subtle bit, which I do want to mention at this stage, which is the Doctor struggles with the carcass. Yeah, I, I quite like that. Because he has never heard of the carcass. The carcass in thing is a superhero. Um, like a we're talking proper like silver era, silver age Superman. Well, he, he's primarily he's meant to evoke Adam West's TV Batman. So he appears with these big starburst like flash pow graphics. Yes, exactly. Then and that's the kind of feeling. So it's come from maybe Zoe's mind, but because the Doctor doesn't know the carcass to be fictional, he can only take the carcass as he sees him, a superpowered man. Oh, well, that's unfortunate, because that means he can't deny the carcass and say that he's fictional, because he doesn't know that to be true. Because, of course, in the Doctor Who universe, the carcass could be real. And, in fact, let's throw forward to Doctor Mysterio. You know, the ghost in Doctor Mysterio is almost sort of exactly the same thing as the carcass. Precisely. So, of course, if the Doctor has never heard of the carcass before, then the carcass could be real. These things... Yes, they're fictional to the Doctor, just as they're fictional to us, but the Doctor lives in a world where stuff like that is also real. Uh, It gets a bit weird later on. I don't know if this was a mistake on Peter Ling's part or a very clever thing on Peter Ling's part, where Blackbeard and Serrano de Bergerac appear, who are, of course, actual historical personages who have become fictionalised histories, and... did Peter Ling think that they were made up, or did he know that they weren't made up and was commenting on the way we've mythologized them? It works quite well, but it could be a mistake. Yeah. It's all very boy's own sort of characters as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the master of the land of fiction, although he's never named, he is cited as writing The Adventures of Captain Jack Harkaway, a boy's own comic, not to be confused with Captain Jack Harkness. And to be clear, that is a real set of stories by a writer who was, in fact, incredibly prolific. Yes, uh, and the details that the master gives about his life do match up. So, yes, it is all very boy's own, 
But that's not just an unintentional bias of Peter Ling. Oh, no, yeah. Everything intentional. It's intentional. And indeed, the fact, I thought it was quite interesting that he's not like a writer of high art. He is a writer of high volume. Yeah, exactly. It's pulp. It's not sort of auto fiction. Right, he's a pulp writer. And I thought that was quite interesting because, of course, he is, you know, in the story, a prisoner having to churn out... Yeah, fiction. Even though he does, he wants to stop because it's the only way he can continue to exist. There's um, there, there is definitely uh, an element of commentary into that. Uh, it is funny that writers, whenever a writer writes about writers, they always write the writers as somewhat sinister and the act of writing as kind of a prison. That just seems to be the trend. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> they're not always happy people. <laughs> The the idea of being sort of a prisoner to your own imagination is something that I fully understand. And the the master, he really is in a kind of a horrible purgatory. For all this is quite a funny, jokey story, there is a real subtle vein of quite disturbing psychological horror to it. When the master realises that the master brain has given up on replacing him and is going to do away with the doctor and he's not going to get to quit. Right, yes. And and it's not even clear that like he'll get to go home. He might just die, but... Maybe that would be preferable. Yeah. There, there is some really horrific stuff here. It's quite ironic that as well as the writer of the Jack Harkaway comics, the, the other prolific pulp comic writer that Peter Ling was drawing on was Peter Ling. Oh, oh really? Which is... Sort of, when you consider that the final episode deals with this sinister thing of fictionalising the Doctor to become the master of the land of fiction and this horrible fate, that Peter Ling has essentially fictionalised himself into being the master of the land of fiction. Right, exactly. That's fascinating. Um, I've just seen him. Apparently, Peter Ling was the son of a stage magician. Oh, I didn't know that. I knew he worked on soaps, crossroads and stuff, which yeah. again, that's that kind of churn it out, keep writing, keep writing an episode every day. Right, exactly. Yeah. The concept for this came from the fact that he used to get job applications from people who wanted to work as a waitress at the Crossroads Hotel. And he found it very surreal that this place had become a real place in the audience's mind that people didn't recognise that there was no Crossroads Motel. And he was thinking about this idea that maybe everything imagined has a real persistence beyond the story and that that's where this came from fascinating that's that's because that's quite a it's a high concept right i mean you know like the whole thing is very metafictional invariably when a fictional story tells a story about fiction it can't, it can't not be metafictional be. right uh, exactly and it's not breaking the fourth wall but there is this thing where the tardis crew fear that they are in danger of becoming fiction and that has a, I suppose there's the catchy term for it is fridge horror element. Because they are fiction. And it, it's not played that way. It's not really called out. Obviously, it's a nod and a wink joke, but there is something very disturbing about what they fear happening is literally the the reality of the universe we're in watching the story. Right, and they can't, they are in the simulation, they are in the fiction, and they can't escape that. And again, another Moffat touch point, Extremis, the Peter Capaldi story. Right, 
that's a great example. But yeah, so the, there is this really low-key horror, and the more you think about this story, the more disturbing it becomes. And, and notably, Jamie and Zoe do become fictionalised, and, and the Doctor gets them back at the end, but they do become fictionalised, and uh, obviously, you know, computer RPGs didn't exist when this was written, but what they are turned into is basically computer RPGs who just repeat the same lines again and again. Right, they become the archetypal NPC. Yeah, and you really want to get into the weeds. At that point, their existence has been converted into something comparable to Gulliver and Rapunzel and Co. Yes. And at the end of the story, Gulliver and Rapunzel and Co. are just wiped out of existence. And it's kind of said, oh, it's okay, they they were never real. But if Jamie and Zoe could temporarily have their own existence become equivalent to Gulliver and Co., then actually that's not as black and white as... It sounds right. Could could they have been given reality? What would that have even meant? There are some really disturbing ideas going here, and whilst you know it's quite easy with Doctor Who stories, especially classic Doctor Who stories, they obviously not always had that much thematic depth. And when we really like them, we often enjoy what we're reading in almost as much as what's there on the page. But I think actually all of this stuff was in Peter Ling's head. Yeah, there's some real attempts to tell some art here. (laughs) Which is ironic, right? Right, because... Because as we said, the master of the land of fiction is not an auteur, he's a pulp pulp writer. Right, exactly. Right, so is is this an auteur thing about pulp? I I don't know. Um... I really, like, it really is such a standout in the middle of the rather formulaic Monster of the Week Troughton era. Did you ever hear of the adventures of Captain Jack Harkaway? No, I can't say that I... Wait a minute. A serial in a boy's magazine? The Ensign. The Ensign. And for 25 years, I delivered 5,000 words every week. You're a writer. Okay, so I'm going to make a claim. I don't know if this claim is true, but I'm going to make the claim anyway. Okay? Okay. This was broadcast in 1968. I believe that Neil Gaiman watched this when he was eight. Uh, almost certainly. So there's two strands to this. One, one of his most famous works, perhaps his most famous work, is The Sandman, which is set in the Land of Dreams and whose main character is the Lord of the Land of Dreams and all of this kind of stuff. Okay, so there's that. But I think just thinking about Doctor Who, think of the episodes of Doctor Who that Neil Gaiman has written, which I think is two. Yeah. So the mind battle scene from Nightmare in Silver. Yes feels very like the mind battle that occurs here between the Doctor and the Master. And the plot of the Doctor's wife is... Not entirely dissimilar, no, I agree. Right, do you see what I mean? Because it involves the TARDIS being pulled outside reality. The sort of the characterization of House is not unlike the Master Brain, who is never has no tangible presence and only acts through proxies. Yes, exactly. The people who are there are essentially slaves. I, I can't prove this. But I, I really do think this episode might have wormed its way into Neil Gaiman's consciousness. I mean, absolutely. Like, even if he didn't see it when he was eight, you know, he's definitely seen it. Yeah. The other thing that, again, felt like, uh, oh, that looks like that thing, uh, was the Magissa, who is like a reverse weeping angel. They're trying not to look at the Medusa, obviously, but you have this kind of statue hand going towards them. And it's not like that. I mean, fairness, evil statues that, like, you can't look at, or, like, monsters you can't look at are hardly novel things in fiction. But again, it just sort of felt like, huh. 
And like with that, you've also got Clash of the Titans and the Ray Harryhausen Medusa. That sequence predates Harryhausen, but Stephen Moffat postdates it, and Moffat definitely was influenced by Harryhausen, I think. Do you think that the Ladder Fiction, under its actual name, could appear in Modern Who? I'm not sure it could. I thought it might do in Matt Smith's first season. River kept appearing and talking about spoilers. The Pandorica opens. You do have this thing of, like, the Alliance of Monsters has used Amy's childhood reading material to design their plan, which, I like, never really went anywhere, but... So I, I thought that in Matt Smith's early season that we might actually get some sort of land of fiction twist from Moffat. I think we've moved past that point now, but it wouldn't have surprised me had it been done then. Oh, and in fact, you know, Amy's choice. Well, I was about to say, is not Amy's choice an example of this sort of thing? But it's not by that name. So... Yes, Stephen Moffat has gone into areas that clearly resemble the land of fiction but aren't canonically the same thing. Uh, there's something about the fact that it's called the land of fiction. It's very, you know what it is? It's very Enid Blyton. Yeah, I don't know that Ling was particularly influenced by Enid Blyton, but he was very influenced by E. Nesbitt. Yeah, but the, the reason I say Blyton in specific is one of her works is The Magical Faraway Tree and its sequels. A lot of the places they visit in the Magical Faraway Tree are like the land of X. Mm. Is that kind of phrasing? So I guess that's why I'm thinking of it here. So one thing I want to say, we touched on it earlier. Uh, this is my episodely uh, mention of LARP. The, the, this was unavoidable. Like we've spent, I've already spent so long talking about improvised costumes and working with what you've got and stuff that... There, there, there was no way around this. Right, precisely. And I want to draw back to where we were with the Time Meddler, where they, the meddling monk's set, in the, his TARDIS set, was filled with all these props that they sort of randomly found, and it just kind of worked. And it feels like you've very much got that same kind of thing here, where, as we were saying, stuff is written to fill the void, and it's got that slightly LARPish sensibility. Yeah, for those tuning in who haven't heard Renner go on about LARP in previous stories, LARP is live-action role-playing. You know, this doesn't have any kind of cinematic sensibility. As we've said, it's kind of a a prologue that's in a different style, but the first episode has a cinematic aspect. Oh, that's true. Yes, the, the first episode does have more of a cinematic aspect, and that's quite interesting given how much it is a pulp rather than art production, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And then once you're in the land of fiction, you've got sort of a stagey aspect that was intentional, that, that like, for once in the show's history... The sets were intentionally meant to look flimsy. Right, I can't believe you hadn't said it, but yes, what it feels like is a stage play. You know, indeed, I think you could turn this into a stage play. Yeah, uh, what I was just thinking is, um, you know, something like six characters in search of an author. Kind of, kind of. That that's what it is. Right, right. Yes, exactly. Uh, six characters in search of an author. Obviously, a bit more <laughs> uh, mature themes, but indeed, <laughs> I'm going off memory here, so I might get this slightly wrong. But Paul Joyce who came in to direct Warrior's Gate, uh, and then there was some, some shenanigans then because he was kind of an auteur theatre director and he brought a sensibility right. that just didn't work with the pulp turnaround on Doctor Who. But I think that he had previously directed for the stage Tom Stoppard plays, which are very much this kind of metafictional thing. Yeah, so I'm not really following this bit. The, the sensibility of 
postmodernist stage theatre would throw up directors who would subsequently come to Doctor Who and try and bring that sensibility back to Doctor Who, and it didn't work. Is what I was, is what I was trying to. Convey. Right. Okay. Uh, that is quite interesting. And it, and it leads to Warrior's Gate, which is very mind robber. It takes place entirely in a white void. In fact. Oh really? Yeah. It's, it's great. It's one of my favourite stories. I, you know, I almost feel like I am coming to an end of ideas to talk about stuff here. I wanted to flag up that Lemuel Gulliver is played here by Bernard Horsfall, who is just kind of an iconic character actor hero of classic Doctor Who. He crops up four times in four very memorable roles. Here in his first role, he's Gulliver. He then comes up again as one of the Time Lords sentencing the Doctor at the end of the War Games. He is Chancellor Goth in The Deadly Assassin, and he's the leader of the Thals in Planet of the Daleks. And I, I, you know, I just wanted to point out Bernard Horsfall and say, mm. what a great contribution to Doctor Who. Always a great performance. He's fantastic as Gulliver. Yeah, he 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 has that heroic face that I think that Gulliver needs to have. Not that he's always a heroic character, but he has. He just has the right face. He's just very. I don't know. I just really like Bernard Horsfall, and I wanted to give him a little a little nod. He's got he's got a pleasant open face. <laughs> May I ask, sir, where you come from? Would it not be Nottingham? My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. <laughs> I was the third of five sons. He sent me to Emmanuel College in Cambridge at 14 years old, where I applied myself close to my studies, learning navigation and other parts of the mathematics. Useful, useful. for those who intend to travel. As I always I believed, believed it, it would be. be. Someday or other, my, my fortune, fortune to do. do. Now I know who you are, sir. Your name is Lemuel Gulliver. Your servants. <laughs> the paradox of the story, of course, is that for all its weirdness, and we've said it's psychedelic, it's also different to other Troughton stories, it is metafictional, etc. For all of that, it is nonetheless entirely by the book. <laughs> right. So, next time, so we have now completed our first circuit through the eight classic Doctors, and so the natural thing to look at next is a multi-Doctor story. Yeah, so we're going to do the five Doctors. Which is a fifth Doctor story, that is to say it was filmed in the era of the fifth Doctor, but stars in some form or another all five Doctors that have been up to that point. Do you have anything? In some form or another, definitely a necessary qualification. Indeed. But um, more than just a story of the fifth Doctor's era... This was an anniversary special, and it will, uh, if all goes to plan, we will be releasing it just in time for this year's Doctor Who anniversary. There is a method to our madness, what tangled webs we weave. You have led me on a journey through time and space, and now I'm going to do it again. But, of course, first, we have an anniversary to do. Yeah, and at least you won't have to watch Doctor in Distress again. Ever again. I have actually watched it again by choice. Yeah, no, I mean, I do that sometimes. I don't. It's. <laughs> it, I don't what, know why it, I do yeah. it to myself. Um, no, I don't either. <laughs> so that that's where we're going next. We are going to... We have a, a combination anniversary retrospective recap capstone Five Doctors special coming for you next. And then we're going to broaden out from... Uh, just like one episode each. We're going to start broadening out, looking at more diversity within eras. We're going to hit those core elements and the forgotten elements each to bring 
forgotten elements more into focus and to question perhaps some unexamined assumptions about core elements. Classic Who's just just massive, you know? You can't cover classic the whole of Classic Who in nine episodes. We've got a lot more yet. I just want to mention one interesting tidbit that I found on TARDIS Wiki, which is that originally there was a bit in the serial where uh, the children pelt the Doctor with lemons, but they cut that. I guess they didn't really want to have a rind mobber. It, it's just not the same. I just, I just, I just wanted to try. <laughs> I mean, we can't stop the podcast until I have done a pun for every single serial in all of Doctor Who. That's that's the real point. <laughs> Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. Oh, oh, oh.